morning, church family. It's great to be with you today. A um, little flavour of Mar Cross in the, in the King Centre this morning. Andy, Rich, uh, Rebecca in the band. Yes! It's, it's great to be here. It's great to be together. Um, we look forward to the days when King Centre, the Norman Centre, West Earlham School, um, full of us, worshipping Jesus and enjoying his presence together. I'm going to start this morning with a 1990s pop culture reference. Um, now, before you get too excited on this, I'm not going to tell the story of the time that I went to Wembley Stadium to see the Spice Girls with one of the members of the current eldership team. I won't. I'm not, no. They're, they're safe. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, 25 years ago, uh, last month in fact, uh, the film Train Spotting was released. My lasting memory of the film has nothing to do with its cinematography, nothing to do with its soundtrack. I really can't remember too much about its plot details either. My lasting memory of the film Train Spotting were the posters that I saw in university halls when I arrived in UEA, at UEA that September. Many of those posters carried the monologue from the opening scene of the movie, where Ewan McGregor's character, Renton, runs down a high street, his feet hitting the pavement in time with the rhythmic drumbeat of an Iggy Pop song. That monologue and those posters began with the words, choose life. And it set out the idea that when it comes to life, when it comes to living, there are two ways to live. There's the option of, of settling and, and going with the flow and allowing the, the drumbeat of modern culture to set the tempo for you. Or there's the choice of living differently, finding a greater and more glorious reason to live that brings joy on the journey. That's what we're talking about this term, joy on the journey, satisfaction and, and purpose to each day. Now, now, it might not surprise you that even through the, the rose-tinted lenses of nostalgia, I'm going to disagree with the conclusions that Renton reaches about where or in whom joy, satisfaction, and purpose are found. But I will agree that there are two ways to live. The Bible assures me of that, too. The Christian author John Stott puts it like this. The essential theme of the whole Bible, from beginning to end, from page one all the way through to the maps, is that God's historical purpose is to call out a people for himself. That this people is a holy people, set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey him. And that its vocation is to be true to its identity. That is to be holy or different in its outlook and behaviour. As we, we've been making our way through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, we now reach a section where Paul lands on this theme of choosing to be different. If you've got a Bible handy, uh, let's turn to it together. Uh, swipe to it, turn to it. Uh, we're in Philippians Chapter 3, picking up from where we left off last week at verse 15. I'm going to read through to the end of the chapter. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. 
And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, for many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Paul's call to the Jesus followers in Philippi is to live differently and it's grounded in three separate areas where he encourages them to apply themselves and we're going to see how they apply to us as well. Those three areas are how they think, how they walk, and how they wait. So, there are two ways to live. And within that, there are two ways to think, two ways to walk, and two ways to wait. What we're going to do for the next 15 minutes or so is, is take each one in turn. So, two ways to think. From verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. A couple of questions spring to mind as I, as I read this. What does it mean to be mature? And what is this way? Well, I've learned a few things over the past year or so of homeschooling. I've learned that the capital city of St. Lucia is Castries. I've, I've learned that the way that I was taught maths is not how my kids are taught maths. Even this week, I've learned that an adverbial phrase or clause does not contain a verb, but an adjective to describe a noun after a comma. And a paragraph is a distinct section of a piece of writing dealing with a particular point or idea. And I guess having learned that, that helps me answer what does it mean to be mature and what is this way? So we started reading today in the middle of a paragraph. The easiest way to understand what we're reading is to take a step back and look at the whole paragraph. In fact, that principle doesn't just apply to this bit of the Bible. It applies all the way through it. If you ever find yourself reading a verse and thinking, what is this going on about? Remember, it's all about its context. Look at its paragraph. Read it as part of a section. Place it in a chapter. Zoom out to the whole book if you need to. Finally, see how it, flip, how it fits within the whole flow of Scripture. The Bible is about God's redemptive mission to call out and save a people from every nation to demonstrate and display his grace and his glory. Most likely, that's what it's going to be going on about. 
So going back to Philippians chapter 3, we look at this verse in the context of its paragraph and we find the answer of what it means to be mature and think this way. We find it through a play on word that Paul makes in the, in the Greek that he was writing in. The word that's translated as mature is teleos. And that is the adjective that corresponds with the verb teleou, which is translated as am already made perfect in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. What Paul is saying is that one of the marks of Christian maturity is to recognize that you're not the finished article. There are two ways to think. One way says, I've got it all sorted. I have reached perfection and I don't need anyone's help to stay here. Maybe you can think of the dangers of thinking that way. There's the obvious denial of reality to start with. Fear and anxiety come in as you desperately try to maintain a standard of perfection that you hold for yourself but regularly fail to live up to. Wondering if anyone else has seen where you've messed up and hoping that you can forgive yourself as you let yourself down time and time again. Paul also wrote to the, to the church in Rome and he warned them of thinking this way. I say to everyone, this is Romans chapter 12, verse 5, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. It's dangerous thinking you're sorted because deep down, deep down we know, we know we're not. And the second way to think is the opposite then. I'm not all sorted. I haven't reached perfection. And if I'm ever going to, I'm going to need someone's help to get there. Here's here's a tweet from Terry Virgo that popped up on my timeline last Saturday. He typed this. Spiritual maturity doesn't mean you become more self-assured and independent. It means that you know the Lord better and are increasingly confident in him. Thinking this way pushes on toward toward the mercy and grace of Jesus. Do you you remember that armchair that Goff preached about a few weeks ago? If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, that is where you sit. You're safe secure your life, hidden in Christ. There are two ways to think. I'm all sorted. Or, Jesus, I need your grace for today. There are two ways to walk. Let's jump back in. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've told you often and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You can hear the the contrast immediately, can't you? There are those who walk according to the example you have in us, and then there are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Before I go into that bit of it, I want to make a quick aside about the word at the start of verse 17. The word Adelphoi, um, I, I read from the English Standard Version, it translates, translates, translates it as brothers. Other versions might use brethren or brothers and sisters. I guess you could go far as siblings, relations, clan, gang. Ultimately, it means family. And it's the word that the New Testament uses more often than any other to describe the gathered local church. Can I, can I encourage you, church, this week, find something, just, just one thing, that you can do to express family to one another. Family can also be a place where we do life together. And that is what is meant by this word walk in these verses. It means the manner in which we conduct our life. Paul is urging the Philippians to find examples of godly men and women whom they can see and get alongside and learn from as they put their trust in Jesus every day. And they do this knowing that he didn't let them down yesterday. He's not letting them down today, and he won't let them down tomorrow. Here at King's, life groups are a great place to do that. They're not full of perfect people, but they are full of people putting their trust in Jesus every day. And they can help you to do that too. If you'd like help finding a life group here at King's, just Drop us a line. Stick something in the, in the chat. Um, send us an email. Can, as God said, you can find the website, kingsnorwich.com. Connect with us. We'd love to help you connect with, uh, with a life group in that way. Then we have those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul had previously told the church in Philippi about these people, and he's writing or dictating this letter with tears in his eyes as he wants to warn them about them again. Who are they? Well, the Bible doesn't name them individually, which likely means it's possible for people to live as enemies of the cross today. If we apply that zoom-out principle that I talked about earlier, we can see that Paul spoke with similar strong language about the dogs and the evildoers at the beginning of the chapter. Their voice can still be heard today. They'll tell you it's not enough for you to put your trust in Jesus. You have to do extra as well. Some enemies of the, of the cross of Christ will tell you that faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus is not sufficient enough for the forgiveness of your sin. That it wasn't enough to turn God's frown into a smile of a kind, heavenly Father. So you have to continually earn your way into his good books. They couldn't be more wrong. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. He says, but God... I could talk for, for ages on those two words. But God... Being rich in mercy, that is what God is like. He is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and God seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. Not a result of, your, of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace. The cross is sufficient. Some enemies of the cross of Christ would stop reading that passage before mentioning the good works prepared in advance that grace causes us to walk in. They say that the gospel doesn't change you when you receive it. That the message of freedom in Christ is permission to live however you want to. Again, the Bible stands against that way of walking. We saw it earlier in Philippians, didn't we? Only let your life, let your manner of life, the way that you walk, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There are two ways to walk. The cross doesn't apply to me. Or Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you carried my sin and gave me your righteousness in exchange. And there are two ways to wait. Their end is destruction, we're at verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. There are two ways to wait. And the first is, is spotlighted by the phrase, their God is their belly. And it's not really waiting at all, but rather seeking instant gratification. I want it now. It places personal indulgence or satisfaction at the centre and causes everything else to orbit around it. Ultimately, this way of waiting is self-destructive. As those who wait like this glory in their shame by pandering to self and being proud of, of things that should cause them shame. This is what Choose Life meant for Renton in train spotting. This was the drumbeat that he ran to. But in verse 20, Paul is quick to contrast this earthly, not really waiting, with the eager anticipation that citizens of heaven have for their returning saviour. This is the drumbeat that drives the Christian life. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will wipe away every tear. He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. He'll defeat death forever and welcome us into his presence to enjoy eternity together with him. As I wrote that, I couldn't help thinking of Goff. There is a day 
There is a day. We look forward to that day when Jesus returns. But between now and then, what do we do? Well, we wait. But waiting doesn't imply inactivity. The prophet Isaiah describes what happens when God's people wait for him. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. One author, uh, Ray Ortland, writes this. He says, To wait on the Lord means to live in confident, eager suspense. It means to live with the tension of promises revealed but not yet fulfilled. This waiting is not killing time. It isn't sitting around drumming your fingers. It's waiting on tiptoe, waiting with eager longing. It's forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead and pressing on towards the goal. It isn't erratic bursts of hyperactivity within a general pattern of boredom. It's a steady, rugged progress sustained by the conviction that the display of God's grace and glory in Christ is yours. There are two ways to wait. I want it now. And Jesus, my hope, my future, my glory is forever found in you. Um, and Andy, the band, do you want to um, start coming back? There are, there are two ways to live. Jesus Christ is the risen and reigning king. He's seeking to display and demonstrate his grace and glory in you and through you to the world around you. Will you choose to let him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I thank you that as we think, as we walk, and as we wait, you are the king. That you are sovereign. You reign over our lives. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, you demonstrate and display your grace to us on a daily basis. Lord, we, we, we come to you. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we, we ask that you, uh, you fill our lives with your spirit. You fill our lives with the hope and glory of your, of your coming. And uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would know you and walk with you each day. Amen. Bless you, church.